Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me is the co-host, Dr. Robert Spies. Our guest tonight is Dr. John Marsluff. He is a specialist in corvids, mainly ravens, crows, and jays. Focuses on how humans affect birds through habitat fragmentation, urbanization, and conservation, and also, conversely, on all the ways that birds affect people. So, uh, as we all know, they show up in art and language. Uh, he's also, in addition to his scientific research, the author of several popular science books about uh, crows and corvids. Most recent book is Gifts of the Crow, How Perception, Emotion, and Thought Allow Smart Birds to Behave Like Humans. Dr. Marsleff, welcome to the Ecology Hour. Thanks, Tim. Pleasure to be here with you guys. We have a lot of interest in corvids here on the Mendocino coast. Uh, we have a, a very healthy population of Stellar's jays and a, a sizable population of scrub jays. Of course, there's a lot more of those in inland California in the oak woodlands. Uh, but we also have a small population of Canada jays here on the coast. And then we have a large, robust population of ravens, common ravens, that gain a lot of attention and I think will be something we want to talk about tonight. Uh, and we also, uh, interestingly, do not have American crows here on the Mendocino coast. There are plenty of them in the Anderson Valley and none on the coast. So with that, would you like to tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got interested in these fascinating birds? Absolutely. Um, my, I kind of started in biology with a fabulous high school teacher, as, as I think many of us did. Uh, and he got us out collecting animals and watching animals, collecting data about uh, distribution of, of birds, of nesting success of hawks and all sorts of things in Kansas, uh, where I went through high school. And um, then, you know, in, in college, focus a little bit more on birds than, than other sorts of animals because, again, of a, of a good prof there. And that sent me to grad school at Northern Arizona University, where I happened to step into a long-term project of jays, hmm. pinion jays in particular. And I remember going to my advisor, who was Russ Balda, went to his office, and I was going to study nuthatches. And Russ said, Hey, I've got this long-term study of pinion jays, and he showed me, you know, the picture of all the families and who was mated with whom and who their kids were and how long they had lived and what they were doing. And I and he said, I don't have a student on that now, and I'd like to have one. So would you be interested in that? And I'm like, I'd be pretty stupid not to be uh, walking into a rich data set like that as a yeah. as a young master student. So that just kind of set me off on Corvids and um you know, once you get into something, as as you guys know, you get into it and you develop an understanding of a of a group of animals or a process in in science, and um, it's easier to stick with it and learn more. You can ask more interesting questions usually the more you know, um, because it shows you how much you don't know, and that just kept me going with uh, with crows and ravens that were eating the jays I was studying. That led to postdoc on ravens with with Bern Heinrich. And then from there, um, you know, gradually moving back to the West, uh, interacting more with the various Western Jays that you mentioned, the Canada and Stellar's Jays in particular. We don't have many uh, scrub Jays, though they have started to colonize Northwestern Washington. Um, but, uh, you know, 
these animals are at hand. They're readily observable and they pose great questions and projects for myself and students to study. So we did. And we were fortunate to be able to do that for, for many years now. Yeah, one of the things that I've experienced in talking to scientists that have been involved in research lines uh, for various lengths of time is uh, it, the longer that somebody's involved in something, the 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 more the, the dividends are in, in proportion to their effort, and and uh, the, the more information is coming in, they can ask better questions. Uh, so it's a, a great believer in long-term science, just just for that reason, just for the career richness. Absolutely. So what kinds of research projects do you currently have ongoing? Well, right now, my main focus, and I'm, I'm getting ready to, to scale back for sure and retire in the next year, uh, where I can just focus on really my favorite research project, which is Ravens. And in particular, we have, uh, in collaboration with Matthias Loretto in Germany, he and I have 70 ravens in Yellowstone and the surrounding ecosystem tagged with GPS tags. So we can monitor their movements, their use of human and natural resources, including uh, the kills made by cougars and wolves, which are also tagged in and around the park and bears with unprecedented um, kind of um, a fine scaled look at, at what where they're going, how they're using these resources and how they're interacting with a, with a full community of predators and other scavengers. So that's going to be enough to keep me going till I die, no doubt. And uh, I'm looking forward to being able to focus more and more on that, though. That's that's my main research right now. We're I've just finished up my last student on crow neural uh, neurobiology, and we previously finished a couple of studies in Denali, one on Canada jays and their caching behavior, and another on the recreational impacts on tundra nesting birds. So, wrapping up those kind of divergent ends and focusing on ravens. I don't know if it was ravens or crow. Excuse me, uh, Tim would probably shoot me not knowing the difference from a distance. But <laughs> but uh, when I was spending winters in Alaska uh, off and on, uh, I would see all kinds of, I think they were ravens, maybe they were crows around town. They were pretty common. Looked like they didn't really leave town during the, the height of the really, really cold season. So you were studying them in Alaska as well as in Denali, did you say? Gray Jay or Canada Jays there, yes. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Okay. The, the raven work, I've helped out some folks up there catch birds and and that but not study them myself but they they would be they could be in southeast alaska either species year round but up uh in the interior certainly it's going to be ravens right i i gotta say bob i i would usually jump on people for not telling the difference between crows and ravens like tim might however <laughs> two years ago when we were catching our birds for the the work in yellowstone I was sitting out watching a dead deer that I had my trap set by to catch the ravens that were coming in there. And it had been a long stretch where we had got no birds and it's not easy catching these guys. It just takes a lot of patience really. And I was set up watching, it was getting late in the day and I had finally uh, a couple of ravens come in and then a goshawk chased them out. And then the raven finally came back and I shot it with my net launcher great long shot, caught the bird, went running up the, the the little mountain to collect my prize, and it was a crow. 
<laughs> so I never again give anybody a hard time for mixing those guys up at a distance. <laughs> I regularly give Tim, Tim a hard time from not knowing one polychaete worm from the next, but uh, yeah. we all have yeah. our specialties. <laughs> yeah. Ravens and crows is one thing. There's thousands of polychaete worm species. <laughs> wow. Nobody can keep them straight. So the the ravens are of particular interest here, of course, on the coast. Let's hear a little bit about your research and tell us a little about, about ravens. What should we know about them? What's their life history like and why are they so adaptable? Well, they are one of the most adaptable species on Earth. I mean, they live from the Arctic Circle and the high Himalayas down into the depths of Death Valley. So they, they can handle just about anything the Earth throws at them. <laughs> Uh, as far as challenging environments. They probably do that mostly by, uh, one, they're, they're a large bird, and that buffers them from a lot of climatic effects. Um, you know, they can stay cool uh, and they can stay warm in those, those harsh environments, but they're also incredibly flexible in their behavior and the foods that they utilize. So they evolved primarily as wolf followers and scavenging from the other uh, megafauna of the Pleistocene. And um, they have basically adjusted as those large predators dropped out of the ecosystem. And they've taken on us as the ultimate provider in recent times and really have utilized all the, the waste that we generate and the sorts of um, food items that we provide on the, the landscape many of which you wouldn't think were that significant, but really are from the bird's perspective. So for example, I mean, it's one thing to, to see them utilizing uh, hunter kills. So when, when they leave a gut pile from a deer or an elk, the raven is right there. It's definitely a major food source where hunting occurs in, in the environment. They're right on those, those resources. And they seem to set their clock in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, at least, to when those seasons uh, start and end. And they adjust their behavior to utilize and spend all of the daylight hours utilizing those gut piles. But they also utilize things that are less uh, obvious, like the grease that floats up in the water treatment plant ponds. <laughs> and they will spend... You know, there will be 10 or 20 birds at a given pond, and there are millions of these ponds around the Western United States that are, um, you know, settling ponds and aerating ponds for uh, tertiary treatment of wastewater. They'll sit around the, the leeward end of those and gobble little globs of grease that float towards mm -hmm. them. And some birds uh, basically are there, um, you know, full time. That's their job and that's what they eat. So, so they can make it on everything from predator kills to human refuse and garbage to little blobs of grease that float in the water and, and everything in between. They're, they're the ultimate scavenger. They're also decent predators. They can take things from small mammal size on down, uh, birds, bird eggs, nestlings, um, insects. They make a tremendous living um, in Yellowstone flipping over bison patties and eating the, the grubs of uh, carrion beetles and other uh, dung beetles that are in there. 
and the larvae of flies that are in there in great numbers. And they, they learn about these seasonally available resources and they track them. And so when the salmon flies hatch, it's a big uh, stone fly that hatches from the rivers uh, in the West. They're right there and they'll harvest those for the week or two that they exist. When beetles congregate on high mountain peaks, they'll fly up and harvest those for the few days or weeks that they exist. And when those sorts of things fail, they'll sit around and eat, you know, grease at the water treatment plant. Obviously. So they have at their disposal their disposal, this huge area that they can track resource availability in and, and utilize it. I was sitting around the garden cafe in Mendocino having a cup of coffee and a, I couldn't believe that there was, there's a couple of ravens on the deck and there were some little pieces, little crumbs on, on the, mm. on the deck that were like maybe a millimeter in size. And they were bothering with, I mean, they were actually going after those things. So here's a bear, a bird that's, you know, I don't know how big it is, you know, it's 20 inches long or something. And it's picking up this little tiny stuff. And five, six pounds there. anyway. There was another one that was ripping the shingles off the little shed next to the, <laughs> to the cafe. And then I must've been picking insects out of there. Cause this, you just grab it and pull the shingle off and, and start eating the insects. So they're, they're really impressive animals in terms of scat, you know, getting after it. Yeah, they're powerful, so they can do things like that, you know, rip off a shingle and get what's under it. They have incredible flight abilities, so they can track these resources over hundreds, if not thousands of square miles. One of our non-breeding birds uh, traveled in a year, uh, well, two years, actually, 15,000 square miles. And um, I mean, they cover big areas and they know what's in those areas and they know when to use different resources that exist. Amazing. There. Yeah. I think of them as being territorial birds with a, you know, a fairly small defined territory, but I had no idea they would range that far. We, we thought of them like that as well. When we started our study in, in Yellowstone and the advantage of the new transmitters that are available for scientists that, you know, study movement of, of animals is that, you basically have 24 seven uh, coverage of where the animal goes in, in ways that we never had before where you had to track the bird down. So now, you know, they, they track themselves with their little GPS unit and should, and give us the data. And yeah, these birds, even the, that was a non-breeder. So one thing about Ravens we should make sure to, to discuss is that there are kind of two, if, if not, three or four different life strategies. And what we normally see is a mated pair and they do have a relatively small territory that they defend. But then there are these non-breeding birds, which may be birds certainly in their first to maybe 15, 20 years of life. They wow. may never obtain a mate. And these birds don't have a territory that they have to report to or defend. And so they can wander these huge distances. Ah. And, and they also aggregate at rich foods. So right. when you get, you know, um, a bunch of birds at a dump or something like that, where food is not defensible, it's too rich or too widely dispersed and consistent to worth fight, you know, to fight over, then you get these big groups. And a lot of those birds are non-breeders or what we call vagrants. So but one thing we did discover in with our tagged territorial birds is that they also make these large 
commutes to rich sources. We have birds that regularly travel 50 or 60 miles one way to exploit uh, kills that hunters make, for example, or uh, other resources like um, like the, the garbage dumps and things like that, and then go back to their territory. Wow. And they can do that at least during the non-breeding season pretty effectively. Interesting. Is that a multi-day journey? No, uh, they can fly 30 miles an hour and, <laughs> and they'll do it. They just go nonstop right to, again, what impresses me so much is their knowledge of their, uh, of their land. Yeah. And so they know where to go, when to go. And they might spend an hour, you know, taking care of business on their territory in the morning, preening, uh, interacting with their mate, and then fly for an hour and a half to go to some food source. Doesn't seem to cost them much energy and um, eat that all day and then fly back home for the night. Wow. Yeah, we got impressed by a, a, one of our uh, interviews with somebody who knows a lot about woodpeckers. And, and woodpeckers uh, apparently can store all this information on where their acorns are and go back yeah. and pick them up later. And and I'm, I'm just wondering, as you talk, whether the, um, the nervous system of, of, of these corvids is a little more advanced or a lot more advanced than a lot of other uh, birds uh, or do they kind of on the par with other birds or you know you think of this being able to keep all these things in mind over thousands of square miles and and know the timing and come back there just uh, that, that's impressive uh, nervous system yeah and there you know the brain of a corvid is big for uh for a bird of that size it's more on par with a mammal and even some of the small monkeys uh in terms of its size Mm-hmm. And size is one aspect. That's not everything about right. the brain of a bird. They're also very densely packed with neurons, much more so than a mammal's brain. And with respect to the corvids in particular and parrots, which are, you know, you also think of as a smart bird, they have really big forebrains. And the forebrain is where these animals bring in information and assess and integrate it, uh, information from their eyes, their their nose, their beaks, all these different sensory inputs come in and are um, assessed and integrated in the forebrain to make decisions. And the hippocampus is there. That's a that's a memory storage uh, part of the brain. And the the hippocampus of a crow or a raven isn't particularly big relative to some birds, but it's big enough to track probably these resource locations quite accurately. And they are able to enlarge and shrink parts of the brain that are used for these sorts of activities at different times of the year. So mm-hmm. when they're learning about some of these ephemeral resources, they might mark them literally in their brain with new neural connections and, and the hippocampus will grow to facilitate that. And then as those become no longer of use, they would the hippocampus would shrink and those connections would, would be lost. So they can grow and shrink the parts of the brain that are needed for different sorts of um, mental activities throughout the year. Wow. Impressive. Wow. Yeah. No wonder they're good at it. And then they don't have just their, their own brains to work with, right? They have communication and a social structure and a way of transmitting information. Right. Exactly. And, and they have a long lifespan to do that through. So they gain from their own experiences 
as they as they age and experience different aspects of their range, for example, and they cue in on other birds. Crows have a have a probably a stronger social system overall, uh, more permanent social system, I would say, than ravens. But ravens cue in on other ravens like crazy, and they'll certainly um, notice them. They'll they'll find new resources, new opportunities by cueing in on the presence of those other animals. They probably form associations beyond the pair bond that we're just starting to understand um, by having a lot of birds tagged and see how they might, you know, we always thought they would gather at a place like a, like a wolf kill. And there, there might be a lot of birds there, but then they would all disperse and go different places and hit a, hit different kills or different resources after that. And, and that happens a lot, but what we're also seeing is that sometimes these individuals, they might not just go with one another from kill to kill or food to food, but they end up at the same place over time. And uh, throughout the year, they probably interact with a subset of birds very frequently, and some birds maybe only once, uh, once every few years. So there's probably a diffuse social system in ravens. Uh, especially among um, some of the non-breeders that we're just starting to be able to tap into. Show some similarity to uh, mammal behavior, particularly apes that uh, form alliances that are beyond yeah. just the pair bond. And, and they use those alliances uh, uh, in a social setting to gain advantage uh, in, in, in various kinds of activities. And And we know that that crows and ravens and the other members of their family make those sorts of alliances and reconcile one another when, when problems arise from lab work. We just never knew to the degree that this might occur in a, you know, the real world in a much larger uh, airspace and ground space, so to speak. But given how effectively these birds move around and, and their communication abilities and abilities to find one another, I suspect that that these alliances also occur. It's just going to take time yeah, for us to document them. That should keep you busy for a few years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before I forget it, I wanted to just check, what is the uh, lifespan in the wild? Yeah. It, I mean, I've got a student working on that right now, uh, <laughs> undergrad for his project from our data. I mean, we don't know until you've banded a bird when it's young, you know, we can tell the first couple of years with a raven from plumage and mouth coloration, how old they are. But beyond that, we can't. And so you have to tag them early and catch them again later or see them later uh, to know for sure. And we had one of our breeders was previously banded uh, 13 years prior by another researcher. And we've got birds that are in the 20s in Europe, ravens. Um, but th- that's kind of the limits of the study to get that exact maximum lifespan. You can you can do the insurance agent view and make a life table of how long you'd expect some of these birds to live, given how many die each year. And when you do that, you're again usually in the 20 year, maybe 30, 40 years for some, you know, extreme individuals um, to make it. And and like most birds, a lot of them die their first year. But then once they make it longer and longer, and especially when they get a territory, because they're also dominant when they get that territory, um, then they have more stability and a longer life. And their their pair bonds are lasting? 
the pair bonds in both crows and ravens are are lasting when an individual who's mated to another one dies that the widowed uh, individual will definitely get another mate right away and we've seen that with a couple of our birds they tend to in our cases we've had a male and uh, female in in yellowstone lose a mate and the remain the the other individual was able to retain that territory and get a new mate on the territory. In Washington, we had some studies of this as well. And sometimes those birds would resettle on their same territory with a new partner and other times they would move. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so, we probably only have about six or seven cases total to see how that dynamic works out. Do them what about divorce? Is there a divorce rate? We haven't seen it. We, uh, we, we've seen it in Jay's. Uh, we've seen divorce there. Um, it's fairly rare in these birds, I think mainly because they do know each other and remember, uh -huh. and there's such an advantage to being a pair um, that it, it's hard to imagine things so bad that it would be worth starting over. Uh -huh. you know, do both really pairs uh, both pairs participate equally in setting up and maintaining territories, or is it that's more male than female? as far as setting those things up? The actual establishment of it, we don't know. But but when you watch a territorial pair, they both are extremely active in defense. Yeah. Um, they both care for the young, work on the nest, yeah. you know, raise the young and, and all of those activities. But it's especially interesting when they're challenged by other territorial birds, which which isn't infrequent. If, for example, a, a resource ends up being on one bird's territory, there's lots of other pairs that come in to eat that resource. And most of the time, the pairs are just dancing around the edge, showing off to one another and challenging each other more than they're interested in eating. They can go in and eat when they want, but there's a lot of displaying. And it's male to male, female to female in that respect. And there'll be chases across the territory and the female will chase another female that comes in or the male will chase another male that comes in. Hmm. So they, they, they split up the work pretty evenly. Interesting. If you've just joined us, we're having a great discussion about the common raven with Dr. John Marsliff of the University of Washington. Uh, and his specialty is studying the corvids, ravens, crows, and jays primarily. Uh, he also works with raptors in various parts of the world and is interested in both how we affect birds and how birds affect us. He's also the author of several popular science books. Most recent book is Gifts of the Crow, How Perception, Emotion, and Thought Allow Smart Birds to Behave Like Humans. One of the questions that occurred to me uh, a moment ago was talking about the, the two different uh, primary social structures. You've got the pairs that are territorial and they have their thing. And then these aggregations. And I had always assumed that those were uh, essentially young birds that hadn't yet found mates. But it's news to me that the, those flocks that you see flying around, small flocks, maybe six or seven birds at a time typically, uh, might include adult birds of advanced age. What's their the social structure in that and how much different is that from the paired birds? It's a lot different. They, they don't have the tie to a particular place. 
They don't have to go back and defend that territory. They don't have to raise young during the half of the year, basically. So they're much more free to roam, to exploit other resources, perhaps to, you know, to prospect for mates and territories as well. I think they do a lot of that. Um, and I think, like I said, we there may be a undercurrent of structure to those groups where it's the same birds that, that come together and do things together, but mostly it's an aggregation, as you said, and it's not really a um, a flock in the sense of a social entity. Uh-huh. It's a it's a temporal and temporary uh, aggregation around some some useful resource, typically food, or perhaps a territory opening. Kind of an association of convenience. Exactly, and and that happens because they're so attracted to one another. When they see another bird, they go and check it out. Maybe there's something there for me. So they, they check it out. Tell us a little bit about tool use in these animals. I know I was watching one of your videos and New Caledonia crows. New uh, Caledonia crows. Very, very smart birds, everybody. A, a lot, actually making tools to extract things. And uh, one little, little, little story uh, somebody told me, I've got a friend that used to feed a bunch of ravens up on his property. You'd take a bunch of old dry crackers up there and throw them out and ravens would come down pretty soon they were noticing his truck when it drives up so that'd be a, yeah. a flock of them and to follow his truck up the road and uh so one day he took a whole thing of old you know saltines crackers and threw them out in the ground and all over the place and there was about 15 ravens kind of picking at these things and this one raven goes over and he grabs he grabs one of the crackers he goes over and sets it on top of a second cracker gets a third one and he stacks up five of these things and puts his, his beak around it and flies off with his prize uh, yeah they can count and they can optimize the use of foods like that um one of the i mean the the tool using behavior that that you started with is is pretty darn unique i mean it's probably the best example of tool manufacture um cultural transmission of the type of tool and the the variety of tools uh that a wild animal makes in these new caledonian crows much better than chimps and other you know species where tool use was first discovered these guys are making hooks they're making spears out of plant material they're storing them for later use their their offspring learn to make them uh you know some of it rather innate uh, they know to manipulate these objects to make tools, others refined by experience. Uh, and they are the absolute expert tool users in the animal kingdom, which is surprising for that it would be a bird because we don't have opposable thumbs on birds right. to be able to do these sorts of things, right? But they do it all with their beak and feet. And um, they do it there because they don't have woodpeckers to compete with. So there's an untapped resource, again, right. kind of showing these birds, the corvids abilities to exploit what's given to them in a given place. Um, they can exploit grubs and subterranean, subterranean insects uh, by using these sorts of tools that they make to, to poke them out or to prod them to come out where they can catch to them. To what extent do ravens do that compared to say, uh, the New Caledonian crows? Like none. I mean, there are a few examples, 
yeah. of ravens make if they put it this way if they ever learn to make tools like that we're in trouble yeah because they're yeah. going to get into whatever they want to get into so let's hope right. they don't figure that out but um crows have done it have been observed doing it a bit more than ravens maybe just because they're more visible you yeah. know around yeah. people more yeah. Um, but but using a splinter of wood to to get into a crevice to get a spider, for example, has been yeah. seen, or to sweep things in they couldn't quite reach uh, from a cage in this situation. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Luring animals in by putting um, food outside of a window, and then when a sparrow comes to it, the raven would grab them. So they can do it, but it's it's not their it's not their wheelhouse. It's not yeah. a typical yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. My my last student who just has finished crow work, Loma Pendergraf, his dissertation was on tool use in American crows. And he trained some of our American crows to solve the Aesop's tube test where there's food floating in water and you have to add rocks to raise the level of the water to displace it so the bird can finally reach the food. And only a few of his crows learned how to master that task. Uh -huh. And those were um, the ones that did were incredible. And they used the part of their brain, mainly in the optic tectum, it's called, that also the new Caledonia crow has extremely enlarged. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that the new Caledonia crow may be the end of the spectrum in terms of being not only they were in the place where they needed tools, but then they evolved the brain structure to facilitate that sort of fine motor control of a of an object yeah but crows that um that are forced to do this or ravens i would expect the same thing they really rely upon that part of the brain which isn't as well developed isn't as enlarged as it is in the new caledonia crow yeah, yeah. so there's some neural limitation for what they can and can't do I'm fascinated by your description you started out with about their evolutionary history, that the uh, ravens originally were more or less following wolf packs around and scavenging off their carcasses, a major, major part of their strategy. And then the wolves disappeared and they adapted to do the same thing with humans. Uh, yeah. And that explains a lot about why they thrive so much on uh, the margins of human development. And it also leads me to my next question. You, you mentioned, or Bob mentioned, the little anecdote about feeding ravens and how they quickly develop these really complex and interesting strategies. And so let's talk about feeding ravens. Uh, it's perceived as a problem here uh, where we have concentrated feeding locations leading to very large aggregations of ravens. And there are some spillover effects from that on the other wildlife. Uh, most notably the black oyster catcher, but okay. also the the uh, threatened snowy plovers, yes, uh, which are very much threatened by uh, corvid predation and particularly ravens. And yeah. so we're kind of trying to educate people about the drawbacks of feeding ravens. What are the pros and cons, I guess, of feeding ravens? Yeah, I mean, there there are pros and cons. So the pro is that you can basically have a wild associate, you know, just like a dog following you around and um, interacting with you, looking at you, calling back and forth with you. And you can have this really interesting relationship with a wild animal. And it's irresistible to a lot of people. 
to yeah. do that. I mean, I've one of our birds in Yellowstone again, for example, one of the ravens um, basically has been adopted by a small town in Montana, and it uh, it specializes on getting roast beef from a barmaid who has trained the bird to ring a bell outside of her window so it doesn't break the window, and she gives it roast beef. And I mean, this a and, and that raven then goes and interacts with the kids from the one room schoolhouse. And it's a irresistible association. And probably, you know, in this case, doesn't really have any bad effect um, on the other biodiversity of the area. It's, it's one raven. It's, it is basically um, showed school kids and regular people and the former Lieutenant governor of South Dakota, who also, feeds this bird when it comes to his cabin in the wilderness, shown them a different part about the wild and especially the part about a bird that most people considered, you know, evil and a pest and a harbinger of death. So for its ability to impart some empathy for the natural world on people, that's a pro of doing it. The con is that if you get carried away like you're describing there where you provide a lot of food in a consistent setting and you get groups of birds that are utilizing this, then that spillover effect of that increase in the population really that you can have by augmenting breeders with food so they produce more young and young birds with food so they survive better, that spillover of a larger population can have impacts on other aspects of rare biodiversity. So knowing kind of what situation you're in uh, and educating people about that um, could help, you know, sort kind of the, the con from the pro in this particular situation. And I mean, there's, there's no doubt that, that, that is a, that can have a negative effect and especially where you're affecting the population of the birds rather than just the behavior of an individual or two. And, and that's probably the way to think about it is, are you affecting an, an individual or are you affecting the population? And where we affect the population, we see ravens uh, have increased exponentially across much of the Western United States. I think a very tiny bit of that is due to people feeding them. The big effect, the thing we really need to control and deal with as a society to stop the negative effects of ravens are these larger subsidies like the water treatment plants that have open buffets for these birds, the open landfills, which in California have been reduced a lot, but not elsewhere in the West, uh, that provide food 24-7 for these birds, yeah. and agricultural settings, hunting practices, these sorts of things that, um, again, you know, just provide a bounty year round that these birds have learned to tap into. And without dealing with those big sources of food, we're going to see a continual increase in ravens and some of the negative effects of having that species thrive. Related to that, I think with these large aggregations that, that seem to me to be a fairly recent phenomenon, is that correct? That, uh, you know, we see now flocks of 20, 30, sometimes 40 or 50 ravens at a time. And, that seems unusual. Is that's, that a new that's, phenomenon? No, it's a standard thing where there are foods that are predictable 
uh-huh. and and uh, available to them. So we see the same thing at um, I saw it in you know landfills in New England back in the '90s. It's probably happened at beached whales since you know the last several million years. Ravens were in North America starting about two million years ago, and wherever there was a big you know, die off of animals or uh, a, a rich resource like that, they would be in groups. Again, w- how structured that group is, we don't really know. I don't think it's it's not a real structured uh, society, but it would include some individuals that interact frequently with one another, a bunch of mated individuals and non-breeders, and, and their ability to, to find and concentrate and tolerate one another kind of at those food sources is is a hallmark of their flexible fission fusion social structure. Mm-hmm. So the good news is that they're adapted for that kind of thing. And if you take the food source away, it, they don't just starve because they've suddenly run out of food. They're, they're going to just fly off and go find some food somewhere else. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's the key. And that's been done actually California parks has done this nicely for Stellar's Jays uh-huh. with their crumb clean campaign. And they've shown researchers in Wisconsin showed the, you know, the abandonment of areas by Jays. We've seen that with a, with one dumpster being moved in our study in Yellowstone, where we had birds going there every day. Of course they're, they're not going there now. There's no food there. It's a simple, it's a very simple thing, but it's a hard thing for society to deal with at the scale that it needs to be dealt with. But. Yeah. yeah. Is there a concern about disease transmission in those large aggregations? Uh, they're corvids and all corvids are fairly susceptible to West Nile, right? Yeah. And it could, uh, that could, you know, limit their populations a bit, the more they do interact in bigger groups. Um, they also have the potential to move pathogens from places where we've put them to places where we live. And they regularly do that when they go to these, um, dumps and agricultural settings where we've got a lot of antibiotics in animals that have selected for antibiotic resistant bacteria. Mm. The birds bring those back into places, mostly crows that roost in urban areas, but ravens in some places where they do that, like Mm. in Sunnyvale. Um, So there are places where these animals could indeed move um, challenging pathogens back to us. They got them from us, but yeah. they move them yeah. back. They, because they're intelligent, they seem to play. Uh, we see a lot of activity that looks like play to us, and they they can find their daily requirement of food in a lot of these areas pretty quickly and easily. And then what do they do with themselves for the rest of the day with that big brain that needs some kind of stimulus? Uh, yeah, and they do. Destructive behavior sometimes. And, you know, maybe the ripping the shingles that Bob was talking about earlier is an example of that. It could be the birds foraging. It could be that it's just bored and it, it gets leverage on something and it rip it. They love to do that. They, <laughs> they've, they've been a problem at a lot of military installations for pulling the very expensive rubbery uh, roof coating and material off of structures and ripping yeah. holes and all sorts of things. Um, they, they play with each other. They will chase each other. They will play tug of war with um, bones and, you know, vegetation with one another, especially young birds do this a lot. They will play with objects um, like 
most recently thing I saw was a chunk of snow and the birds had been foraging all day. They had plenty of time at the end of the day. It's getting windy. They love to fly acrobatically in the wind, but these birds would go down and pick up big chunks of snow, ice, and fly up with it, drop it, catch it, move it between their beak and their feet, chase another bird to steal it from him or her. And this, you know, was just a game that went on for an hour uh, with these dozen or so ravens playing this keep away game. And they'll also, you know, take advantage of um, slippery surfaces and things to roll on or slide down and, and do all sorts of um, play activity. And we used to think of play as something that a bird would certainly not be capable of even doing or wouldn't do. But, you know, we, we know now that play not only can serve real function to learn uh, maneuvers or, you know, cement and, and, um, and broaden social um, relationships, but it's also fun. It's a stimulus. They get a endorphin rush in their brain from doing these things just like we do. It's the same chemicals that are in their brains as ours that are reinforcing and rewarding this sort of behavior. So it's it feels good and it's fun. And so why not? You often see them mobbing other birds, especially raptors. Uh, I, I frequently joke that you can identify red-tailed hawks because they're the bird that the other birds are chasing. <laughs> How many different things are going on in that behavior? Is that play or are they serious about it? What's going on with that? Uh, mostly they're serious about it. I mean, it is a predator that they're moving out of the area, uh, whether it's a predator on the adult or the nestlings. Um, it, red tails can do both uh, for for these species, at least with respect to crows. A red tail taking a raven, that's a that would be a heck of a battle, but it can happen. And eagles the same. So the the first primary thing is to get this predator do away with the element of surprise, get the predator to move on and find that it's not profitable hunting there. Um, the second thing that's going on is definitely some showing off. And, and the social system of these birds is very important. The ability to have a territory and a mate is dependent upon status in the group. And dominant birds uh, are able to do that and younger or subordinate birds aren't. And so one of the ways they show their dominance is by being willing to take these risks of going after a predator like that. Mm -hmm. Occasionally they're killed in doing it. And so it is a real risk yeah. and um, it's calculated risk, I think mostly. And, and it is part of showing off to others as well that, Hey, I'm the, I'm the dominant bird here. I'm the one who's going to instigate this chase or this mob. And you can all come and watch and join me, but I'm, uh, I'm in control of it. Well, that explains a lot. I hadn't, yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> I, we, we see it all the time because we have a meadow here with some great perches for uh, red tails to hunt from. And they're just, yeah. but we're also in the territory of a mated pair of ravens that are here year round. And boy, they will go right after those red tails, particularly yeah. in the summertime when, when they have young. When they have young, for sure. Yeah. But pretty much all year round. Uh, I'll have to watch closely to see if there's a difference in the actual, you know, the details of their behavior when they're mobbing a red tail in the winter versus the summer. Have you seen any of that? Do they, do they seem more serious about it in the summer or is it more play in the winter or is it just they're dead serious all the time? I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if you can tell a difference. Um, 
Yeah, it would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You need more grad students for that. <laughs> yeah, there's never any shortage of questions with these birds. That's the thing, you know, because again, they are right there with us and they're always, you know, demonstrating these things they do and makes you wonder and think about it and, and wish you could chase down every lead like that. Well, I have a couple of questions about uh, reproduction. Uh, how many uh, eggs does a female lay and do they lay every year? Do they skip a year? Uh, yeah. Will they, will they double yeah. clutch if one of them dies? Um, all they they lay every year. If a nest fails early, they will definitely relay mm -hmm. and uh, and try again. If it fails late, then they probably don't have time. Uh, mm -hmm. Incubation takes about uh, 25 days mm -hmm. and nestlings are in the nest for about a month or, mm -hmm. or maybe even five weeks. So basically two months to yeah. get a... Uh, from the start of laying to fledging the young, and right. then another month that the young are in association with the parents on the territory and still being fed and defended by them. So a three-month period. So if you if you have to start over in the first few weeks, you could do it, but any later, you really couldn't time-wise. Right. In northern latitude, you're going to be out of there by September probably. Or yeah, typically August, September um, is the end for sure. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. they also have to molt and they yeah. start molting after the young are out of the nest typically or shortly before. And those two very energy intensive activities for birds, they, they separate as much as they can. And so to molt again, to get ready for the next year in the winter uh, puts a time constraint on you. But typically four eggs would be a pretty common clutch, three to four. And in some areas where they have a lot of food, and this is where, again, the feeding could come into affecting the population, a bird could lay six or seven eggs or even eight eggs wow. and really crank out the number of young in that mm -hmm. particular mm -hmm. breeding uh, Interesting. Effort. I know in some seabirds, the uh, females post-raising uh, young, uh, it drains so much energy from that they don't quite have as much energy as a non-reproducing uh, female from the population and therefore they're more susceptible to the, the harsh conditions in the winter. Is that kind of phenomenon, something that you've, uh, aware of? You know, it's a great, it's a great observation. And we're always surprised at the fact that a lot of breeders die, um, in a given year. And it may, it may be some of that. We haven't, like I said, we're just getting on the We've got two years of data, basically two and a half years of data from our tag birds to start being able to get a look at mortality and how that might vary with those mm -hmm. strategies would be interesting. We should talk a little about their different vocalizations and do we know anything about the meanings of those? Juveniles have that high-pitched falsetto shriek, which they do continuously, it seems like. <laughs> all yes. day every day yeah. and drive everybody crazy but they also have these weird cackling calls and some of it sounds like somebody imitating a horse on pavement with a pair of coconuts and yeah hollow log we call that uh-huh yeah. yeah what what's going on with the different vocalizations and how much do we know about that i would say we know the the bare minimum uh scratching the surface on that and the reason is because um, the context is so important to what these calls mean. They, they could give the same call 
if it's given by a different individual or in a different situation around food, away from food, in, in other settings, it can mean very different things. Um, so we know that context matters a lot, and therefore it's always hard to distinguish what does this particular call mean. Mm-hmm. Given that, uh, when my wife and I were, were studying ravens with, with Bern Heinrich in Maine, we had an aviary situation and wild birds. And we'd sit in our little hut and with a with a shotgun mic out the out the hut and we'd record our birds. We had a territorial pair, we had a non-breeding group, and we had wild birds who would come and interact. So we saw the context and recorded the vocalization in a lot of situations. And we identified about 20 types of calls in general and what they mean. So we know the yell or beg that you described, Tim, of the uh, the young birds. And, and they will do that throughout their life when they see food they, that they cannot access and they're hungry. And the hungrier ah. they get, the more they call. So we could turn that call on and off uh, by getting birds hungry or sated and okay. having them see food that you would just close a gate that they couldn't access versus ones that they could access. And they would give that call uh, when they could not access it in particular. Ah, so. so it's not just a juvenile call. It's the adults will do it as well. And they do uh, not usually territorial birds because they can access food <laughs> always because they're the owners of the, of the place. But younger non-breeders that can't access things do it. And then um, we know something about the begging calls that young birds make, more of a, a ongoing ah, 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 type of call. That's yeah. a signal to others to quit attacking. <laughs> we know about another call that sounds like a sandhill crane mm-hmm. that they give right before they're going to attack another bird. It's like the last thing. You've pushed me too far and I'm going to fight. The knocking that you described, the the hollow knocking, the hollow log sounds, those are given usually in in a duet situation by the territorial owners. Mm -hmm. And the quark, 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 quark kind of Mm -hmm. call they give is often given as a bird's flying. It'll roll over Mm -hmm. uh, completely upside down, give that call and revert back. And um, that, again, is a territorial um, display and signal. Yeah. The females give these rattling, uh, very fast knocking calls mm. of different durations that, that are also um, something about their excited state under a variety of situations. So, you know, we know some of the basics, but there's a lot more. I imagine a lot of it has to do with the social structure. They're, it seems to me when I'm sitting listening to them, there is another raven somewhere else and five trees over that's kind of feeding back. They're going back and forth. Yeah. Same and song. and when they're when they're alone, they'll give every call they've ever heard and can do. <laughs> yeah. And if they're raised huh. with people, they can speak plain English or German or whatever the uh, speech pattern of their owner is. Yeah. So huh. they're they're really great mimics. They are able to learn new sounds throughout their life, which a lot of birds can't do. So they build up you know, idiosyncratic repertoires as as well as these kind of standard species-specific vocabulary. Wow. Well, I knew that we were going to 
get nowhere near to finishing a conversation about these birds. We're actually running short on time and probably need to start wrapping up the show. Uh, this has been a great discussion and it, it feels like we're just getting started. <laughs> We've been talking with Dr. John Marsliff of the University of Washington about common ravens. And we'll put some information up on our website uh, where you can go to find out more information about him, including links to his books uh, and some of the research that he's been involved in. Our website is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Uh, this is the part of the program where I uh, like to ask our guests if there's uh, what new research they're involved in, but it sounds like you're winding that down. So what else is it that you would like to know about these birds that you'd like the next researcher to come along and find out about? And, uh, and if you have time, uh, where would you advise our listeners to go to find more information? Well, certainly uh, some of the topics we talked about need more work. Uh, and for example, the vocalization and, and how graded those are, how continuous they are in changing of information would be great to know um, within the categories, basically, as I was saying. The other thing to me that's fascinating is this transition from non-breeding to breeding life and how long that takes, um, how it occurs, how an individual becomes of high enough status to eventually get a territory and a mate. Um, and that's only something that a long-term study of marked individuals can get at. So I hope to, over the course of the next couple of decades, be able to see some of that uh, play out in front of me. Um, as far as more information on, on ravens and crows, um, Tony Angel and I have done a couple books that you alluded to, Tim. Uh, Bern Heinrich has written great books on, on ravens. Mind of the Raven is a great one. It kind of Classic. Uh, off from, yeah, yeah. from where where some of our work there was. My wife and I wrote a book, Dog Days, Raven Nights, that talks about our experience up there running sled dogs and chasing ravens around. <laughs> um, so there's, there's lots of information out there. There's a lot on the web these days as well. Our, if you can link my website uh, for my university site where a lot of the scientific papers are available if people want to really dig in to that sort of thing. But I would say also understanding the degree to which um, these animals form really meaningful bonds with people would, would be super interesting. Because uh, yeah. as you've alluded to, they certainly do in places and the, the benefits and detriments of that are important to understand. Well, thank you, John. It was just a total pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. Likewise, Bob and, and Tim, I enjoyed it a lot. You've been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. And as we mentioned, you can find more information on our website. That's ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great evening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.